Why don't we uh, jump into God's Word, shall we? Um, If you joined us for the first time, uh, we're going through an Advent series, uh, kind of here and there in the book of Isaiah. We're looking at some promises that God uh, made through the prophet Isaiah about uh, the Messiah. Um, And, you know, as Christians, we we know that the Messiah is Jesus. Um, Two weeks ago, we looked at uh, the promise of a child, and we found how that was fulfilled in Jesus. Last week, we looked at the promise of a king and how that was fulfilled in Jesus. And today, I don't know what we're going to look at. But I know what passage uh, we're going to look at as well. So let's uh, jump into uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 52. Uh, We'll start off at verse 13. And then we'll kind of transport ourselves to the next chapter, uh, 53. And then we'll end at verse 12. So Isaiah 52, uh, verse 13 to Isaiah 53, verse 12. All right, Isaiah 52, verse 13. 253 verse 12. I'll be reading from uh, the English uh, Standard Version. Please uh, follow along uh, as I read God's Word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. For who has believed and what, uh, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, 
I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among, numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of God. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, if you have a Bible open, you can keep it on Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 52, 53, what we just read. We're kind of going to go verse by verse from the top. Uh, we won't hit uh, right to the bottom of the end of chapter 53, but that's where we're going to go. We're going to go from top to bottom. Um, as Daniel said, we looked at the promise of a child, the promise of a king last week. And today I want to talk about how in this uh, chapter we find the promise of a saviour. Now, who here has heard of a guy named Nostradamus? Yeah. He was a 16th century uh, French astrologer, uh, physician, and I think he did some other things as well. Uh, but he was most famous because he, he's famous for predicting what is going to happen. Right? So in his lifetime, he began writing these almanacs. These were things that about, uh, these are the things that will happen next year. And so he started getting a, a bit of traction even while he was living. People were interested in him. Um, I heard he had like a, a, a famous rich donor at one point. Uh, but all of that led to his most kind of famous thing, which is a book that he wrote uh, called The Prophecies. Uh, he wrote this in 1555, and it predicted uh, prophecies, things that will happen even beyond his death. Right? These kind of long-term uh, prophecies. And then he died. And even now, some people uh, read that book and they're like, oh, this is what is predicted, right? And these are the things that will happen. And so even today, people believe that things that have occurred, you know, that we would know uh, were written in that book, like world wars, uh, 9-11 attacks, they say, uh, he prophesied. Uh, even COVID-19, apparently, he prophesied. And right? so people would look in the book and be like, see right here, he, he said it would happen. Um, you know, the, if you look into it, uh, I, don't, I don't know, like it's, it's kind of very, like the way that he writes is very vague. Uh, the thing is that what he, the way he predicts is, is like it's a lot of imagery and symbols and, you know, the, the lion was hungry and went across the water. And people are like, that's the war. That's the world war. And you're like, really? Is that, is that what it means? Um, but for COVID-19, uh, there are a lot of fake versions of what he said as well. So this is what I found. I, I think it's true. Uh, he said this. He said for COVID-19, this is what people say is about COVID-19, right? Near the gates and within two cities, there will be two scourges, the like of which was never seen. Famine within plague, people put out by steel, crying to the great immortal God for relief. Now, I don't know, I don't know if you see it there, but apparently that's um, his prediction of COVID-19. Now, for those who believe that he has gotten one or two prophecies right, right? And there are people who believe that. Suddenly, everything else that he's written has much more weight, right? If you believe that he, he predicted prophecy, uh, COVID-19, he prophesied about it, I think all of us, we'd then get that book and we'd be pouring over it because he got one thing right. Surely everything else he's predicted has much more weight. Right? Surely everything else he said, uh, we should listen to. If I came to you after service and I tapped you on the shoulder and said, hey, by the way, I know you usually go down this road to go to work, but this week I want you to go down a different road because the road you normally go down is going to be a huge crash, 
right? And you might be in that crash. So go around a different way. Imagine I said that, and then it happened. Right? Wouldn't you start listening more closely to everything else I said? Or shouldn't my words have much more weight? Right? Why do I say this? We've been in the book of Isaiah. And the last two weeks and today, these are prophecies. The book of Isaiah was written about you know, 750 years before Jesus came to this earth. And so these were things that God had spoken to Isaiah to, to tell the people to write it down. There will be a child. Right? There will be a king. And today, there will be a savior. It was prophesied. Unlike Nostradamus, it's, it's, it's not unclear. It's quite specific about what the, the king and the child and the savior is going to be like. And these things, I'm going to say, have happened. And so as I unpack our passage today, hopefully one of the things that you will take away is that uh, you will have a greater confidence in God's word. Right? To believe not only that Isaiah predicted uh, that Jesus would come, but then the rest of God's word will be much more weighty to you. Right, if God's word predicted one thing and it was true, shouldn't we treat the rest of God's word in a much weightier way? You know, the passage that uh, we read is actually comes back out in the book of Acts, right? Not all of it, but in the book of Acts, after Jesus is born, lived, he dies, he rose from the dead, there's a eunuch in chapter 8 uh, who's trying to read the book of Isaiah. He doesn't understand what's going on, and God sends Philip to explain what he's reading. And it says, the eunuch said to Philip, right, about the passage, or at least some of the verses we're looking at today. He says, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And so he's asking, who's Isaiah talking about here when he talks about the Savior that's going to come? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this, this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And so the Bible says that our passage that we're looking at is all about Jesus, right? It was prophesied 750 years before Jesus came into the world, and the church would look back on this book and say, yes, this was prophesied, and it was all about Jesus. And so again, as we unpack this passage, hopefully it will give you greater confidence in God's Word that it is true, but that also that the rest of God's Word is true as well. I don't know where you are with your faith, uh, but I found it very encouraging for me as I've grown as a Christian to find that God's word is true. And God's word, uh, though it was written across, you know, thousands and thousands of years that um, from the front to the back, it all agrees with itself, right? And even prophecies written hundreds of years before Christ all came true. And hopefully that will encourage you as well. I want to take four prophecies or four categories, and I'm going to split them up into pairs. And so the first two are about a pitiable Savior that will come. Now we're going to begin in verse 13 of chapter 52. And it begins, it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Right, so let's just stop here. Isaiah says that this servant, and again, Jesus is the king, I said last week, but he's a king who came to serve, right? We understand this. It says he will act wisely. He will act in a way that his purposes will be fulfilled. Whatever he came to earth to do, he will do it, right? And so he does. And in the end, he says he will be high. He'll be lifted up. He will be exalted. This king will be praised by all, right? We'll, we'll lift him up and praise his name. And when you think about a king, 
Right, last week I said there's going to be a king that's promised. He's a perfect king. He's going to reign forever. When you think about the king that will rule the world, we understand that he will be praised. Right? We imagine he's great. And so we have no problems with this. But as we go on, the description of the Savior is actually something that we wouldn't have expected. It's actually quite confusing. He's a pitiable Savior, right? Because first, he's described as being repulsive. Verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Right, so on one hand, you've got this promise of a king. He's going to be great and everyone's going to follow him and exalt him. But on the other hand, now we have this picture of a person that's disfigured, so beaten that they don't look human. Right, so marred beyond human semblance. Right, these are the two. And you wouldn't think that those two things would, would go together. Would you imagine that the king that everyone would follow would be beaten right, so badly? I want you to imagine that you have a friend that's single, and they come up to you one day and they say, I found the one. Like she, imagine it's a guy friend, and he's like, she's perfect. She's, she's the kindest, loveliest person. I can't wait for you to meet her. And you're like, I'm so pumped for this. And he's like, get, get in my car. I'll, I'll, let's go see her. You get in the car. He drives you, but he drives you to prison. You're like, what, what are we doing here? But you just stay quiet. And they, you go into the prison with your friend, and uh, he sits you down in front of one of those, I don't know if he's actually like this in the prison. You know, you've seen in the movies where there's a gl- glass or perplex thing, and you pick up the phone, and you sit down, and you pick up a phone, and another girl sits opposite on the other side. And she's like got bandages around her head, her eyes puffed up, stitched up, you know, kind of dried blood. Her arm is in a sling, broken or something. And he's like, this is the one. The kindest, loveliest person I've ever met. She's perfect. Now I want to ask you, if you saw that, what would you think? Now, we're not meant to judge on appearances. Right? Let's not jump to conclusions. But come on, if we're honest with ourselves and we saw that, we would probably think, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if she's really, you know, the loveliest and kindest and perfect. Like you, you said she's like the best. And what I'm seeing is maybe it seems like the worst. But she's probably like somewhere in the middle maybe at best or maybe closer to the end. Right? But definitely not the kindest, loveliest, perfect person, right? There could be, but there's a very small chance of that. And that's kind of what we're given here with Jesus. He's described as being perfect. He's going to be the king that will reign forever. And yet he's also going to be so beaten and disfigured that we would not even recognize him. How does this make sense? If we put ourselves into the shoes of the Old Testament, the people of God, and we didn't know how the story will will continue, we didn't have the New Testament, I think we'd be super confused. We'd wonder if this prophecy is right. We'd wonder how any of this will ever make any sense. And yet we know it will. It does because God is wise. If you saw the passion of the Christ, right? if you grew up in the church, you probably saw the passion of the Christ. I saw it as an adult. You might have seen it as a kid. right? Probably way too young when you watched it. It's really hard to watch the passion of the Christ. Uh, it's so brutal. It's so violent. Right? I, I remember it was hard to watch as Jesus was beaten 
and he was whipped. And you see, like, the, the whips kind of tear out the flesh. But that was just a snapshot of how Christ um, underwent suffering. Just a moment. And yet he endured all of this, and he was meant to be the king. But it makes sense as we unpack the gospel. And we're given a hint in verse 14 how this all makes sense. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. That word sprinkle is important. In the Old Testament, uh, they had the sacrificial system, and priests would sacrifice animals, and they'd sprinkle blood you know, on, um, as, as a symbol of the people of God being cleansed from their sin. The blood was meant to cleanse the people of their sin so that they could then approach God. And so Christ is beaten and mocked and is crucified on the cross and blood flows down and that blood is meant to then sprinkle us and make us clean. And now it seems to make sense that the king would be so disfigured because it was for our cleansing. Right? The book of Ephesians says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The king, perfect, is the one who will follow, will reign, he'll be lifted high and yet disfigured. And he was disfigured because to the measure of which he would suffer is the measure by which we would be cleansed. You know, many in the world today would look at Christ on the cross, suffering, thorns on his head, blood dripping down, and it would look a little repulsive. It doesn't look like what a king looks like. And yet to us, we know with eyes of faith that this is beautiful. To one hand, it's repulsive, but to us, he's the beautiful savior. He is the one who died in our place. Not only is he described as being repulsive, but he is described as being rejected. And this also doesn't seem to make sense. Again, you've got a king that everyone's meant to follow, but then now he's described as someone that everyone rejects. How is he meant to be the king of the world if the world is going to reject him? Again, doesn't seem to make sense, but we know as the scriptures show us that this does make sense in the wisdom of God. Verse 2 of chapter 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. There are a lot of uh, words here that describe Christ. No form, no majesty, no beauty. He's despised, rejected, men hide their faces, we esteem him not. And I'm just going to summarize that, that we rejected him, right? That the, the world rejected him. And again, when you think about a king that everyone's going to follow, you think charismatic, handsome, maybe fashionable, good looking. I don't know, that's what I think about. You think of the king right now, always dressed nicely, you know, with like some jewels, you know. 
some fashionable, like, I don't know, high-class clothes. That's how we imagine the king. And that was nothing like what Christ looked like, at least while he was on earth. When you imagine a king, you imagine from birth to young age, even as they begin their public life, their charisma will draw people in. And yet that wasn't what Christ was like, at least initially while on earth. The whole life of Christ was one of rejection. From birth, again, not in a palace, not with excitement, not with trumpets, not so gather around, like Lion King moment. Everyone see, it's the king. None of that. It's conceived in scandal between Joseph and Mary who were not yet wed. So a lot of gossip probably going around then. People rejecting him immediately before he was even born. At his birth, rejected. The inns had no room. No place for him here. And even Herod tried to murder him. Throughout his life, rejection. His family didn't understand and they judged him. People didn't recognize him. The woman at the well has no idea that she's with the Savior of the world. John the Baptist, at a certain point, wasn't even sure. He's like, are you really the one? And the religious leaders, of course, rejected him, hated him, and eventually put him on the cross. And then, in his death, right, birth, his life, and then even at his death on the cross, rejected. His disciples scattered, abandoned him. Only one was left. The soldiers and the crowds, right, they mocked at him. They spat at him. They insulted him. The crowds at one point, they, you know, were gathering around him. They didn't want anything to do with him anymore. And even heaven would turn its back on Jesus. And the Father would reject him as if he were a sinner. At the cross, Christ is suspended. Like, you imagine, picture him on the cross between earth and heaven. He's just hanging there, suspended. And all of earth has rejected him. No one is really there for him. His mother, maybe a few, John. But all of earth has rejected him. And all of heaven has rejected him. I wonder if at that point he was the loneliest person to have ever lived. Christ, before he came to earth, he knew perfect fellowship for eternity within the Father, Son, and the Spirit. A love that was perfect. Perfect community since before, right? Because he lived forever. But on the cross, rejected by all of earth and all of man. He was a man of sorrows. And yet earth had to reject him and crucify him because they needed to condemn him and put him on the cross because that's the cost to save us from our sin. And all of heaven needed to reject him because that was the cost to save us from our sin. That rejection was necessary so that he would save us from our sin. So that now we look at him and we receive him. At one point on the cross, everyone had rejected him. But now when we understand this news, we receive him, we praise him, and we exalt him. And somehow the one that everyone rejected is now the one that hopefully everyone receives. And all of this is possible by the wisdom of God. Again, if we 
had tried to imagine this all making sense, it would have been very difficult. I think none of us would have really understood how the Savior would both be the king and yet pitiable, and yet he was all these things. But he's also described in the next point as a perfect substitute. Why did Jesus have to endure this kind of beating and disfigurement? Why did he need to be rejected by all? It was so that he would be this, a perfect substitute. And so let me unpack two things uh, that Isaiah says here. Verse 4 to 5, he will be our substitute. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Let me ask you, who put Jesus on the cross? There are many ways to answer that, and there are many ways that are right. You might say uh, the religious leaders put him on the cross. They're the ones who you know, kind of put him on trial. They're the ones who made a big issue about him doing miracles on the Sabbath. They put him on the cross. And you were like, yeah, that's right. You might say Judas put Christ on the cross. The, when Judas betrayed Jesus for money, he put him on the cross. And you'll say, yeah, maybe that's kind of true. You might say God the Father. God the Father... He, his plan was that his son would go to the cross and die. And later in the verses, it talks about that. It was his will to crush him. And that's true. It was the father's plan. He put him on the cross. Maybe you say Jesus put himself on the cross. That's also true. Jesus willingly chose to go to the cross for your sake. He wasn't forced to. The father didn't force to. The father wanted to. The son wanted to do it. He willingly went. That is true. And yet it's also true to say it was you and me that put Christ on the cross. That is how Isaiah describes it here in this verse. He, he includes himself in the reason for which Jesus died there on that cross. He has borne our griefs, he said. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgression, crushed for our our iniquities, and it was upon him that the chastisement was placed, the one that brings us healing. And Isaiah, he says it again later on, right, that it was Christ who carried our sin. If you and I did not sin, Jesus would not have died. It would have been unnecessary for the Son to have gone to the cross and die. But it was for our sin, to free us from our sin, that Jesus went to the cross. You know the hymn, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. Until it was accomplished, his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. It's my sin upon his shoulders. It's my sin that held Christ there on the cross. And the, and the hymn says, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. The crowd put Christ on the cross. Yes, but it was also us. It was our sin and our rejection of him. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. But to put it a bit more specifically, 
He died for your sins by taking your place. There on the cross, he was your substitute. When you look to the cross, we should say, that's my cross. And there he's carrying my sin. And there he is dying my death. He took your place. If you read on in verse 6, it says this, All we, like sheep, we've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. If we're sheep, we've rebelled against the shepherd. We've gone and done our own thing. We've said, I'm going to live my own way. I'm going to make my own rules. I'm going to choose my own decisions. I'm going to spend my money my own way. We've turned, it says. We've gone astray. But it goes on. The Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. I don't know if you see it there. In verse 6, we're the sheep that's gone astray. But then in verse 7, who's the sheep that gets slaughtered? It's no longer us. It is Jesus. He is the one that was afflicted. He is like a lamb led to the slaughter. He took our place. And there on the cross, He died in our place so that we no longer need to be punished. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He took our sin. He died out in our place. He died so we don't have to. We call this substitutionary atonement. That Christ, he substituted himself into our place. And this is why it's important that Jesus was man. I said, I think it was two weeks ago, that Jesus was both man and God. He was the, the, the child born to us from earth, and he's also the son given to us from heaven. And it's important that Jesus was a man because he was there to substitute himself in our place. And it took a person to take the place of a person. In the Old Testament, I said before that they had the sacrificial system. They would take animals and they'd, they'd kill them and they'd shed their blood. And what the animal was meant to do was take the place of Israel. We have sinned. We deserve to die. But instead of me, this animal will take my place and will kill it. But the author of Hebrews says that this doesn't really work. How can an animal take the place of a human? It's impossible, he says, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But how can an animal replace you? You're a human. It's apples and oranges. God would accept that sacrifice because God told them to do it. But what it really took was someone like us. A person to die for a person. A human to die for a human. And so Jesus was the lamb that took our place. The man that would die in our stead. That we might be forgiven. And that we might be counted righteous. He was repulsive, beaten, disfigured, rejected by all, so that if we would put our faith in him and repent, we don't have to be rejected by God. He took your place on that cross. That's why he was a man. But also, he was God. And this is important as well. Jesus wasn't just a child born on earth. He was a son given from heaven. He's a child of earth. He's a man but he's also sent from heaven. He's God. He's fully God, 
fully man. And why is that important? Verse 8 to 9. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, right, that he died, he was stricken for the transgression of my people. Verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Let me pause here. This isn't to do with my point, but it says he's with the wicked and with the rich man. And, and that's also kind of interesting because you wouldn't think that uh, wicked and rich people would go together. Normally, the wicked people would be poor because they, they've, they've stolen or whatever, and, and they've been judged for that. And then you've got the rich people who are usually good, at least in their understanding. And it says he dies with both of them. Right? How does that work as well? But when you see Christ, that's exactly what happens. He goes to the cross, and he's flanked by two criminals, two wicked people. That's how he dies. But when he's buried, if you read the book of Matthew, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph comes. And that's how he's described, a rich man. And he says, can I bury Jesus in my tomb? And that's how he's buried. He dies with the wicked. He's buried with the rich. But verse, verse 9 keeps going. It says he'll be with the wicked and the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus would endure all of this. He'll die and be beaten. He'll be crucified. His blood will be shed. He'll be rejected by all, but he had done nothing wrong. He had done no violence. He had no deceit. He was innocent. And this is why it's important that he was from heaven, that he was from God, that he's divine, is because he's perfect. He is not like any of us. Though he is, that he is, he's man like us, he's very different because he's never sinned like any of us. All of us, we are born in sin. All of us, we have committed sin. But Christ was born different from us, from the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and throughout his life, he never sinned. And he was able to do that because he was God. Again, this is important because how can one person die for many? If you were condemned to go to, um, let's say, prison, and I said, oh, I'll go instead. I don't know if the judge would take that, right? They'd say, oh, Paul, I don't know if you're worth them. You're not as good as them, you know. If you're condemned to die and I said, I'll die in your place, is that a fair trade, me for you? Maybe some people would allow that. But let's say there were two people condemned to death and I said, I'll die for those two people. No way. My life is not worth two of you. Definitely not. Well, what we're saying is Jesus died for all of God's elect. How can one person trade their life for all? It only makes sense if Jesus was better. If he's perfect. Maybe a perfect one could trade his life for many sinners. And so this is why it's important. Jesus was man and God, as Isaiah, he outlines, because as God, he'll be perfect. As man, he'll be our substitute. And so when you put those together, he's our perfect substitute. If Jesus wasn't man, he could not substitute his place for ours. It would be like you went to a crowd of kids. Ruben, he's, he's, he's into Pokemon cards. Actually, not really, but he just likes to open them. Um, but let's imagine Ruben and his friends are trading Pokemon cards, and I rocked up. I said, hey, uh, I'll trade you my marble for, for your Pokemon card or my Digimon card for your Pokemon card. But they'd be like, 
what are you doing? We're trading Pokemon cards. You can't trade something different for what we're trading. And again, Jesus had to be man to take our place, to trade places with us on the cross. But if Jesus was not God, he could not die for all of God's elect. What Jesus did was he was that perfect Pokemon card that traded himself for many. I don't know if you guys know, you probably do. I don't know why I've heard of this guy. Uh, this guy named Logan Paul. Uh, he, um, I, don't know, I don't know much about him, but he owns the most expensive Pokemon card in the world. Do you guys know this? <laughs> he spent 7.5 million Australian dollars on the most expensive Pokemon card. It's a Pikachu Illustrator card. There's only a few dozen in the world. I think they made 41 of them. And they gave them out at some event. They gave 39 out at an event, and they had two other ones uh, because people drew some stuff. So it's a very limited thing. And out of the 41 that are out there, I think only half have actually been kind of, um, they, they send them out to professionals to see how good of a quality they are. So only half are known to be around in the world right now. And out of the, the half, there's a bunch of grade 9 versions. Grade 9 out of 10 means it's nearly perfect. Right? Maybe like this, if you look under a microscope, it's, it's the, the, the white border is, is not even or there's a little bit of you know, fingerprint on the back, or whatever, that, that's a nine. He bought the only 10 out of 10 version in the world. Perfect. The only perfect version. $7.5 million. That's what perfection gets you. $7.5 million Aussie dollars. And he wore it to some wrestling event. Ugh, anyway. Now imagine I went up to Ruben and his friends trading Pokemon cards, and instead of coming with a Digimon card, I pulled out the perfect, rarest, most expensive card, and I said, I'll trade you this one card for all of the cards that you have. Is that a fair deal? I think so. In fact, I'd probably say, get all your friends and all their cards, and go down to the school over there and get all their cards, and go down and get all their cards, and I'll trade you this one card for all of your cards. I think that's a fair deal. That's what perfect gets you. You'll take one, and you'll trade it for many. And so Jesus was man. He substituted himself in our place, but he was also the only perfect one, never sinned. And he said, I'll take the place of all of God's elect. If you would put your faith in me and repent of your sins, I'll pay the price for you. I will take your sin on the cross. I'll shed my blood. I will die your death so you no longer need to. If you believe in me, you are forgiven. You are free. You are a child of God. You will never taste death. You will live forever. Here is the promise that Christ gives to us. The king endured incredible suffering, immense rejection, because he will be our perfect substitute and he will save us from our sins. Second Corinthians says, for our sake, the Father made Jesus to be sin. Even though he knew no sin, he became sin on the cross. He carried it on the cross so that in Jesus, you and I might become the righteousness of God. This is us switching places with Jesus. We are sinners. He is righteous, but on the cross, he was treated like a sinner so that in him we might be treated righteous by the Father. 
This is what Christ has done. And again, these are prophecies that were written 750 years before Christ was born. It prophesied throughout Isaiah that he will be a king. He's promised to us. He's the perfect king. And he will reign forever as our permanent king. And yet at the same time, pitiable, repulsive, because he's so beaten, rejected by all of earth. And he will do that so that he will be our substitute on the cross. None of us would have imagined a king like this. None of us would have planned out that the Savior of the world would look like this. And yet, in God's wisdom, that is who Jesus is. And if you understand this gospel message, doesn't it make you want to lift the king? Lift him high, exalt him, and praise him. Right? He's worthy. He's so beautiful and wonderful to us. And that is the wisdom of God at work. And I hope that as you just think about the fact that this was prophesied 750 years before Jesus was born, it might also encourage your faith in the Bible. The word is true, not only about what it says about Jesus, but everything else that it says about you, about sin, about hell, about heaven, and how you can be saved if you put your faith in Christ. There are, they say, depending on how you count it, 300 to 500 prophecies in the Old Testament. We looked at four. 300 to 500 prophecies that were all true when Christ came and lived and died. The word is true. And what it says about how you need to put your faith in Christ is true as well. And I want to invite you to put your faith in him today. Let's close our eyes and let's pray. And why don't we reflect on the promised Savior, the one who would come and he would be nothing like what we might have imagined, nothing like what we might have planned. He would be beaten and whipped, nailed to a cross like a criminal, marred beyond human semblance. He will be repulsive in the eyes of the world. And yet, do you have the eyes to see him as he truly is a king who came to die for you? So beautiful to us. His blood shed, washing us of our sin. So wonderful to us. He was rejected by all of earth and all of heaven because that was the cost to reunite earth and heaven. Does that make you want to praise Him and exalt Him? He was man and God. As being man, He took your place on the cross. As God, He was perfect so that He could trade His life for all of God's children. If you would put your faith in Him, that would include you. Let's reflect on all these things and thank God, praise Him. And if you are not yet a Christian, if you are struggling with your faith, I just want you to wrestle with what was shared. All of these things were predicted way before Christ was born. I want to encourage you to trust in what God's Word says and to believe these things about Jesus. Would you ask God to help you maybe to believe in this Jesus today? Uh, let's, let's pray and we'll respond in praise and lift God, lift Jesus up as He deserves. Let's pray.